0: Hello everyone, welcome to our second Europe After Corona podcast, a series of conversations promoted by Open EU Debate, a Jean Monnet-sponsored network. My name is Carlos Carnicero Urabayan, I'm a journalist based in very sunny Brussels, still sunny here, and today I will be moderating this talk about the COVID-19 huge economic challenge and the response we are seeing in the European Union. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the participants. Today's guest editor will be Marta Dominguez, research assistant at Bruegel and member of the editorial committee of Open EU Debates. Welcome, Marta. How are you today?
1: Hello, Carlos. I'm also enjoying sunny Brussels.
0: (laughs) Good, good. We are are in the right mood for this conversation. Uh, We've invited to join us also Michelle Shang, Professor of European Political and Governance Studies at College of Europe. And in fact, she's also in Brussels. How are you, Michelle? I'm doing well. Thank you for the invitation today. And we also have another great contributor to this podcast, and that is George Pagolatos. Professor of European Politics and Economy at the Athens University of Economics and Business and Director General of the Athens
2: based think tank Eliamep. Welcome, George. Hello. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Great.
0: So, I think today's question couldn't be sadly uh, more relevant as we are entering the biggest crisis the world has faced since World War II and probably the biggest economic tsunami since the Great Depression of the 30s. So, Marta, maybe you can start. Um, I, I am being too pessimistic with these uh, sentences. How bad is the current crisis from an EU perspective?
1: Well, I mean, I think, um, I think it's still very hard to tell. Um, I think the economic effects of the coronavirus are certainly uh, you know, very substantial and secondarily to the medical impact and and also have a big human cost. Uh, but in terms of how the crisis will evolve, uh, well, the IMF uh, published certain predictions just a couple of days ago in its uh, World Economic Outlook, and they termed the crisis the great lockdown, which is, I guess, a very catchy phrase, um, but also symptomatic of of the grim reality that we're living in. Uh, but they predicted global growth to actually fall by 3% in 2020 um, and for it to be even worse for advanced economies. Uh, so we're talking about a fall in 7.5% in, in the eurozone, 7% in Germany and France, 8 in Spain, 9 in Italy. And well, the, the general feeling is, is of certain pessimism for sure. Uh, how it will evolve on from there, I think it's hard to tell. There's a lot of conversation. is V-shape, U-shape, L-shape. How will the recovery be? I think uh, a certain, um, to a large extent, this will depend on on how we react and on the policy response. And certainly in the EU, this comes both from member state ability to craft a response, which sadly is not the same in every country. Um, but And of course, that requires Euro-level action. Uh, but also other, other aspects such as ECB action and, and several other things. So, I mean, the short responses, it's very hard to tell.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Michelle, uh, what can, what can these data say about how bad this is and how are, from a general perspective, how are Europeans responding to this, uh, to this huge challenge?
3: Well, as Marta just said, it's bad and it's going to be bad. Everybody has acknowledged that in terms of the economic impact as well as the health impact. I would also add that this is another existential crisis for the European Union just a few short years after its last one. And it's not clear. That the EU is going to come out of this well.
0: Okay, George, uh, what, what's your view on this? Is it's an existential crisis from a Southern Europe perspective? I think I think your import, your opinion, it's really worth it in this regard. How do you see it?
2: Well, this is um, this is uh, a crisis that we could uh, see as a symmetric crisis in the sense that the pandemic is hitting uh, the entire eurozone, the entire EU, the entire world, in fact but it is hitting it in an an asymmetric way in the sense that not all countries are in the same uh, uh, position in terms of fiscal space, in terms of economic vulnerability, in terms of the ability to confront the crisis. So we have seen quite asymmetric responses in terms of the stimulus packages that have been deployed and we have seen of course asymmetric responses in terms of the effectiveness of measures, uh, which has been widely uh, dispersed, not necessarily in in terms of a kind of a traditional north-south, I do not like to use this term, but just for the sake of of understanding each other, divide. So we have seen countries that have reacted uh, quite effectively Uh, to the crisis. Germany was one of them. Greece, surprisingly, was also one of them in terms of the uh, health uh, measures introduced and others that were late in taking measures. But uh, the the vulnerability of the countries that were affected by the previous Eurozone crisis is evident uh, on the fiscal space that these countries have. We look at the, the very difficult position Italy finds itself in um, and also uh, in terms of the impact that this crisis will have on the real economy and especially on the day after. I think our focus should be on the day after the ability of these economies to get back to growth. In that sense it seems to me that uh, even though the, um, the the 7.5 recession in the euro area projection of the IMF is quite quite sobering, quite grim, um, to, uh, the 52 uh, projection of a recovery might be too optimistic for 2020 uh for 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 after after the crisis uh the um uh the toll of on the on the real economy might be longer than 2020 uh and even 2021 okay thank you george so uh, we're seeing that this this crisis as you said is is
0: symmetric in theory affecting all all of the all of eu countries but some are better equipped than others to deal with this so their responses are obviously not the same so i I would guess that uh the eu should be the shield the shield to guarantee that everyone is somehow protected regardless of the difficult or more or less difficult situation they are in their own particular country so uh, am i being too idealistic this is purely theory or is in fact um europe uh, somehow, a shield to protect all citizens, regardless of their uh, particular condition of their economies in their countries.
1: Well, I mean, um, certainly, uh, from a treaty perspective, the EU was founded on certain principles such as solidarity, um, which which would or should um, probably, you know, come into play in circumstances like this, which is quite an exceptional situation, and. Um, and, and not only a very substantial crisis, but one that, unlike in 2008, there's it's much easier to point fingers, to, well, um, ascribe a certain degree of blame to certain member states uh, for their particular situation. But in this case, we're experiencing a very exogenous shock. Um, it was... You know, it's basically unprecedented, it wasn't expected, and it has nothing to do with specific structural flaws, the shock itself. Now the ability to combat it certainly uh you know has to do with the with the economic vulnerability and with the fiscal position of the member states.
3: Yeah, I would add that the European Union as a shield is a very poetic imagery. But the euro area in particular um, clearly rejected the idea of redistribution within the euro area on a massive scale. And whether or not this will change their minds is yet to be seen. But when we talk about the EU's response that we need to distinguish between national responses and EU-level responses, and at the EU level, what they can do, aside from the European Central Bank, is rather limited you can repurpose funds from the nff you can try to increase them but that still looks like a very hard road ahead you can release some of their obligations like they did for the stability and growth Pact. but what the eu can do to get the member states out you know um, releasing them from some state aid restrictions and that sort of thing yeah, it is relatively
2: limited still. That's exactly um, where we are. Uh, the, when we talk about a collective EU response, we're mainly talking about the sum uh, of national level fiscal responses. So the aggregate uh, fiscal measures, uh, discretionary aggregate fiscal measures in, in the uh, Euro area are about 3% of GDP. That's not a big uh stimulus, uh, taking into account the impact of the crisis, but at least it's a decent one. But if you look how this is being distributed, um, uh, the uh, distribution between countries is very, very different. Uh, So uh, the immediate fiscal impasse in Germany uh, has been about 7% uh, compared to Spain uh, or Italy at 1%, and a similar uh, difference in terms of the Uh, credit uh, guarantee programs and the liquidity um, programs, stimulus programs that have been deployed. What we are actually facing is another uh, demonstration of the limited instruments that exist at the truly pan-European level in order to be able to confront such a crisis, even a crisis that is symmetric, much more symmetric, than the Eurozone crisis that we had 10 years ago. In fact, it all boils down to uh, Uh, the real backstop that the Eurozone our Eurozone can provide, which is the European Central Bank. The European Central Bank has reacted in a formidable manner, but of course, it cannot be the only um, institution that will take it upon itself to confront a crisis of such magnitude. Uh, More fiscal instruments have to be deployed at the Eurozone level, and we haven't seen them yet. Before
0: we move on to the, and we go more into details on the fiscal response, maybe I'd like a quick comment from you uh, related to what George is saying. I, I feel like we were wasting our time since the last euro crisis. Is it true that it got sunny in the EU, like it is sunny today in Brussels, and uh, uh, everyone forgot to to repair the roof and to do the, the right reforms to to make the eurozone ready to, to deal with this kind of uh, huge crisis? When you say,
3: did we waste our time during the sunny years? No, in the sense that we didn't have an agreement within the EU about what fixing the roof meant. And so you had that debate, um, you have to bring back the North and South tropes, but they still exist, that this is about risk sharing versus risk reduction, that that wasn't resolved. And so this is why we spent some so much time not doing that much or making very limited strides in terms of things like the Euro Area budget and completing banking union is because of that division on what this, what solidarity refers to, what union refers to. Does it refer to risk reduction or does it refer to um, risk sharing?
2: Yes, if I if I may add up to this, um, we have done a lot during the crisis, uh, but unfortunately we have also Uh, wasted the opportunity that the crisis has offered in terms of being able to build instruments of a more effective risk sharing, more effective mutualization of risk, and we're now seeing the results of that. Uh, There are countries that will find it extremely difficult to recover, not from the immediate uh, kind of medical health shock of the crisis. The liquidity provided uh, by the ECB, the combination of instruments is ample. That's not the problem. The problem is how these economies, especially in the southern periphery, uh, but also this also involves uh, France to a considerable extent, will be able to face the day after with the legacy of public debt that will have, uh, to which will have been added the cost of the budget deficit of 2020. In some cases, reaching levels well above 130-140%, well above 160% of public debt to GDP or even near 180% area uh, in the in the extreme limits of debt sustainability, what fiscal room they will be able to have and how will they be able to finance the kind of investment that will be needed for their economies to grow on the day after and avoid entering a new cycle Of fiscal austerity that will uh, suppress their growth capacity for the years to come. This is the main challenge, and we haven't resolved it with instruments that we introduced over the previous decade, and we haven't resolved it with the intervention and the decisions that were taken in the recent Eurogroup, unless uh, a kind of recovery fund is deployed uh, around with an envelope over uh, one trillion rather than uh, below one trillion in order to be able to, uh, to implement this role of providing a real stimulus for the day after.
3: Yes, and I would just add on to that and say that a lot of what has been suggested is loans and guarantees for loans, which doesn't resolve the problem that George had indicated.
4: Esse discurso é repugnante no quadro de uma União Europeia. E a expressão é mesmo esta. Repugnante. Porque nós não estamos disponíveis, ninguém está disponível, para voltar a ouvir ministros das Finanças holandeses, como aqueles que já ouvimos em 2008, 2009, 2010 e anos consecutivos. E é boa altura de compreenderem todos que não foi a Espanha que criou o vírus, nem foi a Espanha que importou o vírus, O vírus, infelizmente, atingiu-nos a todos por igual. E se nós não nos respeitamos todos uns aos outros, e se nós não compreendemos que perante um desafio comum temos de ter capacidade de responder em comum, então ninguém percebeu nada do que é, que é a União Europeia. São um país da União Europeia acha que resolve o problema do? De...
0: So we just heard Antonio Costa, uh, Portugal's Prime Minister, speaking with strong words and, and very upset uh, with the Netherlands. But after that, we saw the Eurogroup getting a deal done that involves half a trillion euros. Uh, But despite this deal, we're we're seeing EU leaders struggling in sometimes a nasty way and and on how to agree on a fiscal response. Uh, North and south divides, as we were mentioning, are in fact echoing the dark Euro crisis days. So, Marta, how deep are these? current divisions. Is there room for uh, for a compromise and to see maybe a, a bold response?
1: Um, so I think there are several things that come into play here. The first is, as, as George said, the fiscal response at a national level has been very different in different member states. Um, to be specific, I think, for example, in terms of measures of immediate fiscal impulse, it's been calculated that Germany has implemented these to the value of about 7% of their GDP. Uh, when in Spain and Italy, it's about one. And with other measures such as liquidity and guarantees, again, in Germany, it's about 40, almost 40% of their GDP. In Spain and Italy, it's under 10. Uh, so the differences between member states are clear and are evident. And, you know, obviously many, many things come into play when crafting fiscal policy, but certainly fiscal capacity is, um, is an important element here. But also I think it's important to highlight uh, what Michelle pointed out, which is fundamentally there is a there is a disagreement on on the construction of the eurozone and and of on the degree of risk sharing that we should have. And I think that uh, became you know fairly acrimonious this time around precisely because we are in such an emergency situation and and member states uh, see the response in in very different ways. So the deal that was reached, I guess, was seen as a compromise. Um, There is a kind of ESM component, but there was no mention of conditionality uh, in exchange. There was also no mention of euro bonds, um, but there was a plan of a kind of recovery plan, which is, you know, has to be laid out in the future. Uh, And then there were other aspects, such as the Commission's sure proposal on, on unemployment and a series of other things. But overall, as I said, this is seen as a compromise. Um, but uh, but the differences between the member states in the process were certainly highlighted.
0: Michelle, do you want to react to that? I mean, is there room for, uh, we saw a compromise, but probably that's not enough and we're going to see more, a more and more difficult situation and more decisions need to be made. So is there room for, for more?
3: Well, there's definitely room for more. And as Martha said, this was a compromise. This is the first step given the, given how massive an economic crisis that we are, are expecting from this. So in terms of the European stability mechanism, they have um, allowed for the enhanced conditions credit line to be used. And this would normally require an MOU with policy conditionality. And so they've decided not to go and have this. There's just a commitment that they're going to be spending this money on that health crisis. But this could still come back later. And so it's not that conditionality is entirely absent from this discussion, that this is still something that the Dutch finance minister had referenced. And so this was a compromise that allowed everybody to be relatively happy and that for the Italians, the use of the ESM is a rather toxic debate, given how it was portrayed during the euro crisis and the conditionality and the austerity that could potentially be imposed as a result. And so I think that, and like I said before, this is also contingent on uh, a credit line. So this is, you know, loans once again. So we do still have a lot of room that could be done if it happens at the European level or is limited to the national level, we'll have
0: to see. George, uh, one of the ideas on the table was the uh, the corona bonds euro bonds definitely not a new idea uh, but it is an idea that you know some member states have been pushing for uh, like Italy Spain Portugal Greece and so on so do you think this idea is, is it taboo to talk about corona bonds are we gonna are they so relevant
2: to address this crisis well just to give to give some context, it has been estimated that the stimulus needed in the euro area for this year alone uh, is at the minimum uh, 1.3 trillion. That's about 10% of euro area GDP. We've had about 3% uh, discretionary aggregate fiscal measures, which shows how much potential there is still to deploy a much more effective fiscal stimulus. Now, initially the discussion was, as you mentioned, about Corona bonds, and this is a discussion that um, could not go very far because it smacks of a euro bond that would not be accepted. However, the kind of reformulation could not be accepted by by, uh, a group of countries. However, the reformulation uh, in terms of a recovery fund as has been also uh, agreed by the Eurogroup, though the specifics have not been defined, perhaps offers, and I would hope it does, a way out of this, um, of this dead end. Because uh, what we really need to introduce is a kind of a model that would be slightly different from the ESM model, where every member state is liable up to its share in ESM capital. Uh, the recovery fund is based on the notion of a joint and several liability of all member states, so every country guarantees the total debt issued by the recovery fund, and the important thing is to be able to issue common debt for the European Union, not just for the Euro area. Um, that will be long-dated bonds whose um, cost will be able to be covered uh, in, in the years or, or even decades ahead. Uh, so, as to, so as to spread the cost of financing recovery and investment after this COVID crisis um, to, to the future. Um, it would be a much more effective model to uh, deploy uh, the issue of common debt rather than use the MFF. The MFF has very limited resources as it stands. It is capped to 1.2% of GNI even below that as we stand, and using its resources will further burden the budgets of uh, existing member states. So um, it seems to me that this uh, version of the proposal, issuing common debt, funding investment, uh, long-dated bonds, is the kind of way forward to reach closer to the magnitude of stimulus required, not just for 2020, but for the rebuilding and the recovery of the the eurozone and the European Union uh, member states on the day after.
0: Okay, this. So, if I say a quick comment, this recovery fund sounds like good music to my ears, and I think it was the the French government who proposed this idea in the first place, and and now it's there uh, as an idea. It was part of the deal of the Eurogroup, but it needs to be def- defined, agreed, and I'm wondering whether member states, such as the Netherlands, Germany, are ready to endorse that kind of uh, recovery fund that you were describing, George? So, so maybe, Marta, uh, do you think this kind of recovery fund is doable? It's likely it's going to happen?
1: Um, actually, I, I I also have a kind of a question uh, for the guests, because I was wondering, and in, in line also with, with your question and with uh, what George said, uh, you called it a reformulation, and indeed I think there are kind of um, discussions here that are very much you know, a difference in, in view of what the economic solution should be. Should we have risk sharing or shouldn't we? Debt mutualization, yes or no. Should we have fiscal transfers, yes or no. Um, but I think there are also aspects that are a bit more political. And you were saying how euro bonds are just absolutely taboo in some northern countries. And at the same time, the ESM has a certain stigma in countries like Italy. And, um, And you you mentioned how the recovery fund could be a reformulation of, of, well, you know, certain aspects of the fiscal response in a way that is politically less contentious. And I was wondering what the, what Michelle and George, what you thought in this regard, to what extent do we have a fiscal, uh, a political obstacle, sorry, as well as an economic obstacle? The economic obstacle exists for sure, but.
3: You mean a political obstacle in terms of finding a solution at the EU level?
1: i mean more in terms of to what extent are part of these discussions less on the technical content of what would be done and more on certain terminology that has become synonymous with you know certain certain past events
3: oh well what i, what I was going to say is that part of what's driving this is domestic politics in each of these countries and so it's not that the dutch finance minister personally has something against these measures from an ideology. Maybe he does, but the real issue is how this is going to go and play to his domestic audience. And so in that sense, that is a big obstacle to go and find a solution. And so when we talk about, you know, the technicalities, it's not just a technical question for the technocrats to solve. It is a political question so that these economies, these finance ministers, can turn back to their national governments, their national electorate, and say, this is what we did, and we had to do it for our own benefit, and not make it just a question of solidarity, but also, we needed this for us. George?
2: Yeah, f- fully agreed with Michelle on this. Um, the, the challenge with any discussion about mutualization of debt is, of course, that uh, the, the, the For example, the Dutch finance minister would find it very difficult to go back to his government and his parliament and say that I've just uh, agreed on an instrument of mutualization, even if it goes to uh, um, to future debt. Uh, the, the government coalition is fragile in, in the Netherlands and it could face a severe challenge, and perhaps even so. Um, the, the German coalition, even though it is m- much stronger than, than the Dutch. At the same time, the, the, the other side of the coin is, of course, that the Italian government cannot go back to its own parliament and public opinion and say that I just accepted and signed into an ESM programme that involves some conditionality, even if this conditionality is light. Uh, involves a program and this program could become harsher and more constraining as we move out of the purely medical dimension of the COVID crisis. Now, on the technical uh, side uh, that Marta mentioned, it's not just a technical decision uh, distinction. Because uh, the, the, the proposal on a recovery fund is not one that would involve a mutualization of, of legacy debt. So you could see uh, the recovery fund as a kind of a one off uh, set of one off debt instruments, right, that will not involve legacy debt, current debt, and will fund recovery across the euro area and across the EU in a mutualized way. Without taking, and in fact, this could also introduce uh, a further reliance on own resources. It could be funded uh, in, in terms of who who repays the debt when it matures uh, on the basis of own resources such as environmental taxes, digital tax, a part of the corporate tax, or uh, terminating various tax avoidance schemes that are active inside uh, the European Union as we stand.
0: Yes, uh, we, we I, I like the expression. I, I, I interviewed Joaquin Albunia, the former uh, vice president of the commission recently, and he was saying that Italy, the Italian political landscape has satanized the uh, ESM. And and I don't know whether that was a good idea because maybe Italy may, may need to end up applying to the ESM. So so I don't know whether, whether this kind of, of uh, making something taboo when it can happen, is, is it a good idea? What?
2: Yeah, it, it is. In, there is a, a strong argument in support of um, uh, Italy uh, funding itself through the SM in the sense that the uh, SM loans would be uh, cheaper than the ones that uh, Italy can draw from the market, even taking into account the uh, ECB's role. Uh, we saw the um, Italian yield uh, jump over the last few days. Um, the program would be lighter. Uh, at least uh, for this year, but uh, of course the question remains and that is where they do have a point that these loans would be added to the Italian debt to the point of making it unsustainable, probably unsustainable or the the borders of unsustainability also combined with the magnitude of recession that Italy is going to suffer. And the problem with Italy of course is that it has been producing primary budget surpluses uh, over the last twenty years, much more frequent and larger than even Germany or the Netherlands have been producing uh, at the primary budget level. The problem is that, of course, it's the fiscal deficit is also higher because the interest payments that go to the for the Italian debt are higher, and that is the the legacy problem of Italy, the legacy problem of its debt debt that was accumulated uh, largely in the uh, in the seventies or eighties. And uh, it is it is truly a very difficult uh, situation because on one hand, they have to service this debt. On the other hand, they cannot keep on following a policy of fiscal austerity when they need to invest in their economy so that their economy is able to grow because their debt has been a function of the denominator. It's a result of um, uh, a very low stagnant growth rates over the last 20 years, rather than a growing debt as a result of a lax fiscal policy. In fact, the policy was, as I said, very disciplined in the fiscal level.
0: I'd like you to hear some words that probably you, you heard before, I'm sure, on this one, uh, from Christine Lagarde. You know, we will be there as I said earlier on, using full uh, flexibility, but we are not here to close spreads. This, this is this is not the function or the mission of the ECB. There are other tools for that, and there are other actors to actually deal with those issues. Marta, uh, this was Christine Lagarde in mid-March, and it was a rather unfortunate start of dealing with this crisis for the ECB. Uh, Lagarde, then, a couple of days after that, he, she apologized and she, she said that uh, it was a little mistake, this comment. But of course, we've seen since there uh, a rather uh, consistent action from the ECB. So, how do you see the ECB? I know you're fo- you've been following the, uh, the the ECB's response for the last week. So, I want you to, to tell us how do you how do you see the ECB uh, being ready? and even uh, matching the whatever it takes of 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 Draghi's uh, times dealing with the euro crisis how 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 is the ecb ready
1: so i think the ecb's response has been substantial and has been has certainly made a difference and has been well was was necessary in many ways and thank god um but no in terms of specifically so that day that lagarde said those i guess unfortunate words Um, She was announcing a package that, in my opinion, of course, a much bigger package came after, but had some interesting measures. Um, Specifically, uh, they had aspects in terms of regulatory capital and so on, uh, which should be beneficial from a bank lending standpoint. Um, But also and more significantly, um, I think it was six days later on the 18th of March, um, quite late at night as well at uh, fairly unorthodox time they they announced the pandemic emergency purchase program, uh, which is a new asset purchase program that is looking to buy seven hundred and fifty billion in assets um by the end of the year, which is you know quite a significant sum. And uh, and more than that, a few days after that, uh they um, announced that certain rules would be relaxed regarding issuer limits and other aspects, which make this program even more powerful. Um, because uh, typically these ECB programs follow a capital key, which is you buy a certain percentage of, of each member state or rather national central banks uh, um, do so. Uh, and there are issuer limits, which is a maximum of how much you can buy which for um your uh, euro area sovereign debt is is 30 was used to be 33% per issuer, but this will not be um followed for this program which gives them a fair amount of discretion uh, that has given a fair amount of support uh, to sovereign to the sovereign debt of countries with a a more deteriorated fiscal position, let's say, such as some of the southern countries. And indeed, um, following Lagarde's words that you played, the spreads on Italian debt, almost every debt, in fact, uh, versus German debt, in fact, Dutch debt, also also so widening in spreads. But this was obviously more significant for southern countries, um, but that quickly subsided after the pandemic emergency purchase program was was announced.
3: I'd like to go and say something that might be a little controversial, which is Lagarde wasn't wrong. That first comment that she made that was unfortunate and everybody was very disappointed, she wasn't wrong. That's not the ECB's job to go and Narrow those spreads. The ECB, from a legal perspective, is not supposed to be the lender of last resort for the euro area sovereigns. And this is an issue that had come up during the euro crisis as well. And the ECB stepped into this vacuum from the lack of action from the EU member states and became a lender of last resort. It faced some legal challenges that all worked out in the end. But that doesn't mean that the ECB isn't constantly under scrutiny for this. And I think that Madame Lagarde's statement, that part of the problem was that she wasn't wrong, but she didn't read the room of what was needed at that time. But the reaction to that also indicated that this would be taken positively and not with a legal threat.
2: Yeah, if I- try trying to, to, to send them, sorry, go ahead, George. Yeah, I, I'm fully agreed with, uh, with Michelle. Um, The ECB uh, has been taking the brunt of crisis management uh, in this crisis as it did in the previous Eurozone crisis and undertaking a a much uh, higher, much more extensive role than what would actually correspond to its formal institutional mandate because it is making up for the lack of of a Euro area fiscal response. Um uh, and that that renders it uh vulnerable uh to a legal challenge in the future. It has been challenged uh, so far, uh, the ch- legal challenges have not uh, been upheld, but uh, they could be raised in the future. It makes it. Uh, Susceptible to a political backlash, which we have already seen in Germany before the COVID crisis, and we were likely to see also after the COVID crisis. And of course, it is a question how long, for how long, this very um, bold policy that was announced by Madame Lagarde uh, will actually be able to be upheld by the ECB uh, when the balances in the Governing Council change. Or when the urgency of the problem fades, uh, there might be a, a new reality and a return to a, a greater normalization of policy, um, and that is why um, uh, countries like Italy are demanding uh, a greater reliance on a eurozone kind of fiscal response to the crisis, because they they cannot uh, rely exclusively on the ECB purchasing. Italian debt. In in March, uh, about 35% of the total debt purchased by the ECB was Italian bonds. Um, obviously this cannot continue indefinitely. So um, the, we have to see a further reactivation of fiscal policy responses by the Eurozone at the Eurozone level, which has also been uh, not just indicated but very strongly um, proposed. By uh, Christine Lagarde as well. So, are we relying too much on the ECB? Is that uh,
0: policymakers are not doing their job, and we are depending too much on the technocratic side? Uh, and that is, of course, the, the ECB dealing with the the big the big part of this
2: crisis. Yeah, I would say yes.
1: Yes, I would agree. This is not the ECB's problem to fix. Okay, Marta. I think that's the the general opinion. The problem is they will have been the institution. As, as we said earlier, they're the EU level institution with the most power, with the most ability to to make a difference here. And, and given as the kind of fiscal side has been lacking in many ways, I think they've borne the brunt, uh, as they said. The question is, how long can that last? is, is certainly relevant. And I, I also think, should there be explicit political support for it? And is there a way around that? Or I, I mean, I don't know
2: well if I, if i may uh, if if i may add to the previous point i think that uh, it is it is acting uh, very boldly but it it should continue to do so for as long as we don't have a fiscal uh, uh, fiscal policy response of the euro area uh, and, there, uh, and and of course uh, um, the political support to it uh, is uh, to a significant extent a matter of politicians uh, at a national level not uh, scapegoating the ecb for Uh, matters that might uh, emerge or for the low or negative interest rates at the national level uh, and blaming the ECB for uh, low returns on uh, deposits and so forth. In that sense, it also has to be politically defended at the national level, particularly in in northern economies.
0: Before we finish, uh, let's play a little game. Let's see how this goes. Uh, I'd like to give each of you a minute, maybe less, Uh, to project ourselves into the future. Let's say we are in January 2021, so a bit more than six months from now. And maybe I'd like you to think about something you envision that will have changed in Europe at that time. So uh, it can be something more um, about how we live or something more uh, in terms of uh, a big economic or a specific economic uh, package that we will see agreed. You can. It's it's a game. You can you can guess and 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 it's uh, it's fine. So Marta, do you want to give it a try?
1: Right. So um no, I was going to say uh, I think it's always a bit scary to make predictions. I think uh, in terms of the way we live, I hope that hasn't changed too much in seven months, eight months' time. I think there are many people saying you know social distancing will become the norm and so on. I I certainly hope not. Um, from an economic standpoint, I mean, we'll see. I um, I do hope we have um, a bold package at the EU level. Uh, and by EU level, I mean probably agreed at the European Council level. Michelle. By January 2021,
3: in some ways, I don't think that much will have changed because I don't think enough time will have passed for a vaccine to have been developed or for some sort of cure for people that do contract COVID. So I do see more social distancing in the future. I think that there will be a relaxation of the lockdown, but then another wave of illnesses. I don't think we're done with lockdowns in May, despite what some of the governments have been predicting. But as the crisis gets worse, this pushes the EU further and further to a point where we might see something resembling additional solidarity.
2: Yeah, I I also <laughs> predictions are are good, especially when they refer to the past. But I I would assume that we'll be uh, seeing a, a kind of a second wave of 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 COVID nineteen by that time. Um, we'll be keeping a distance, maybe not as as much as now, because the. Uh, The treatments will have developed, even if a vaccine is not yet there, we'll be washing our hands more frequently, Um, we'll be teleworking much more systematically. I think, by the way, this is something that will remain after the crisis as well. Much more work will be transferred to the internet and to uh, platforms and so forth. Um, I would hope that by that time, the Eurozone will have realized that it is the core of the European Union response to a terrible crisis uh, this the ability to respond to this crisis will also define the ability of uh, Europe to uh, be a global player in the world and defend its global interests. If it is not able to uh, uh, provide a cohesive answer, it cannot claim to be a player of any importance at the global level. So I would hope that by that time, uh, we will have seen a more mutualized response in terms of funding at least part of the large investment needs of recovery uh, in the European Union area countries.
0: So I think we're, we're coming to an end. I think it was a great conversation. And I want to thank Marta Dominguez, uh, Michelle Chang and George Spagulatos. I, I want to thank you for your contribution. Please stay safe and healthy. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Ethan. Thank you.
0: It was a pleasure.
1: You too. Thank you, Carlos.
0: So this was all for now. Uh, Europe After Corona is a series of podcasts promoted by Open EU Debate, a jean Monnet sponsored network and produced by Agenda Pública. We will continue this conversation very soon because, yes, these lockdown days will be over and we better be ready with answers on the post-corona world that is slowly emerging. Stay tuned and stay safe.